Sergeant James Campbell stamped his feet to try and keep the numbness at bay. He, along with thousands of others, had spent the last two weeks marching, with only occasional stops. After the first hundred miles, even the seasoned campaigner that he was, Campbell wished he still served under his old commander, Robert Monroe. Monroe had remained in Edinburgh, besieging the royalist garrison which held the city's fortress. Now, he knew from experience that a siege wasn't a good place to be, whichever side you were on, but tell that to his aching feet. So, after hundreds of miles of marching, it had been a welcome change to form up in the pre-dawn gloom and not have to move. But now, after hours of standing and waiting, well, it'd be a blessing to get moving again. When the order had come to form up, Sergeant Campbell had corralled the men in his charge, many of them green recruits, who had had a proper Scotsman's drill beaten into them, sometimes literally. At least they now knew how to load their muskets and how to hold the taper without letting it go out. They'd need that training, Campbell knew, as he looked across the river. Across the ford was a small army. Campbell had never been good with his numbers, but after years on campaign you got the knack of eyeballing it. There was easily a good few thousand waiting on the other side of the river. Smaller than the Army of the Covenant, that was certain, but the ford would make it a fairer fight. If, of course, it actually came to one. So far, both armies had just faced each other. Early on, once there'd been enough daylight, a few of the louder men worked themselves hoarse, shouting and swearing at the other side of the river, but they'd worn themselves out. But after hours of doing nothing, people were getting restless. The shouts and jeers were picking back up from both sides of the river, and a few men were swaggering towards the riverbank. Campbell recognised one of them, a cavalry officer called Neil Oliver, canter his mount closer than the others. He was shouting something, shaking his sword at the royalists. Oliver had always been a bit of a mad bastard, and everyone always said that his passions would end up getting him killed. Just as Campbell thought it, someone on the other bank had the same idea. The crack of a shot ran out, and Oliver's horse reared as the man keeled backwards. The gunshot was echoed by a roar of anger from hundreds of men, as the Covenanters watched one of their own die. As if the officer's death was the signal, Campbell saw the Royalist cavalry begin to march towards the ford en masse. Shouts came down the line, and hearing his orders, Campbell ordered his men forward. They were to be among the first Covenanters to contest the Royalist advance. With God on their side, Newburn Ford would be theirs. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 12. The Second Bishop's War. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. I hope everyone had a nice Yuletide and Hogmanay. Before we begin, I'd like to thank some patrons, new and old. Normally I do this at the end of the episode, but after taking two months off, I'm especially grateful to everyone who continues to pledge, upped their pledge, or became a new patron when I wasn't really providing rewards. 
Thank you to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, for his incredibly generous donation. Thank you to a new King's favourite, Owen Cotton, who has now joined that rank. Liam Hunter has risen to the rank of Marquess of Coventry. David Robinson is now Earl Ferrers. Alistair Fanish is Earl of Fortescue. Mark Petrie, Earl of Mansfield. Stephen, Viscount Colville. John Christoph, Viscount of Near Earth Object 3753, Creithney. Jordan, Baron Richardson. Joshua, Baron Beatty. And Baron Reflect. Thank you, all of you. These are only the people who have changed or added pledges in this time. All my other patrons who have continued to support me, thank you so, so much. Last time we had a narrative episode, we looked at how the Royalists and the Covenanters attempted to persuade and convince people that they were in the right. As armies mustered on both sides of the Anglo-Scottish border, propaganda was preached from the pulpit, it papered the streets, it was read aloud in the taverns. In Scotland, the Covenanter government, the Committee of Estates, did what it could to keep their coalition together and to deny their royalist countrymen's support. While in England, Charles I, having dismissed the first English Parliament in 11 years after just three weeks, the aptly named Short Parliament, was attempting to raise an army with whatever means he still had at his disposal. However, as we saw last time, much of this royalist force was conscripted, or otherwise underpaid, and discontent within the ranks was rife. Officers were occasionally killed by their own mutinous troops, while other units went on rampages targeting Lordian churches and other symbols of authority. However, the dissent was not limited to the soldiery, and with the usual avenue of complaint silenced, that being Parliament, Charles's subjects resorted to a more direct approach. Petitions came before the king from July, and to be fair, Charles had invited this at the dissolution of Parliament. These petitions came in from across the kingdom, from the shires to the city of London, signed by minor gentry and from some of the greatest peers of the realm. We'll return to those peers in a short while, as this week the Second Bishop's Wars shall begin. In Scotland, the Committee of Estates, having wielded the pen with such success, now fell back on the sword. Royalists in the North and the Highlands, who had not been convinced, would now be shown the error of their ways. These included the areas of Badenoch, Mar, Lochaber, Rannoch, and in a personal blow to Lord General Alexander Leslie, Athol. If you recall when I first introduced Leslie, he'd been born in Athol before being fostered by the Campbells of Glenorchy. When the Scottish crisis divided the kingdom between Covenant and King, Leslie used this fosterage to persuade the Campbells of their responsibility to him. Fosterage was a powerful bond in early modern Scotland. It imparted responsibilities on par with blood kinship to back the fosterling in peace and war. The Glenorchy Campbells did so, yet Leslie's fellow Athelman did not, and he did not take this well. Leslie wrote to Robert Campbell, his foster brother, that those who chose to, quote, separate themselves from the rest of this kingdom shall find they are no friends to me who are enemies to our cause. He warned the Campbells to be vigilant, and was due to lead a Covenanter army to confront his wayward kinsmen. However, instead, the Earl of Argyll led the force commissioned by the estates to suppress the enemies of the Covenant by force. He rampaged through the Highlands, brutally sacking royalist regions and seizing strong points throughout June. 
Speaking of strong points, with the situation rapidly approaching war, the Covenanters sought to repeat the rapid conquest of key fortresses they'd achieved during the First War. Once again, Edinburgh Castle was of prime importance. It had been returned to the Royalists in the Peace of Berwick, and was now under the command of Sir Patrick Riven. If you recall, Riven had refused this post before the outbreak of the First Bishop's War due to the castle's lack of supplies and poorly kept defences. This turned out to be a good choice, as Leslie took it in an afternoon. When it was returned, he agreed to hold the castle, and had ensured it was well provisioned and well defended. So, when the estates demanded that he surrender the fortress in June, he politely declined. Well, not entirely politely. He demanded the Covenant of Force withdraw from the castle's approach, or else he would bombard Edinburgh with the castle's guns. The Covenanters duly withdrew. On the 4th of June, the estates established a council of war, headed, of course, by Leslie. In response to Riven's threats to bombard the city, the Covenanters seized dozens of Edinburgh's royalists. This, in return, led to Riven to carry out his threat. The castle's cannons, which had watched over Edinburgh, were now unleashed on the citizens. More than 200 people were killed in this exchange before Riven called a halt to the bombardment. Now, it doesn't take a military genius to realise that a strongly fortified castle held by a hostile force in the middle of your capital was far from ideal, and so the estates brought in the big guns. Quite literally. Dear Sandy Hamilton, the savant of sieges, brought his considerable talents to bear on his former comrade. Edinburgh Castle was surrounded by siege works and batteries of demi-cannon, capable of launching shot of up to 40 pounds. Both Riven and Dear Sandy settled in for a siege, allowing Lord General Leslie to get to work. The earlier preparations for war now bore fruit, as the tax and recruitment system instituted over the winter allowed the estates to muster an even larger and better equipped army than they had the previous year. Stephen Murdoch and Alexia Groschon estimate this force to be around 23,000 men. Veterans of the Continental Wars made up significant portions of this army, as well as much of the officer corps. Dear Sandy Hamilton, the Aristotle of artillery, had been hard at work, and the armies were well furnished with artillery pieces of the most modern kind. With Argyle suppressing royalists in the Highlands, and the Siege of Edinburgh Castle left in the capable hands of now-Major General Robert Munro, their flanks were secure. And in August 1640, the Army of the Covenant crossed the border into England. As America prepares its presidential election on November the 3rd, we look at the life of a president who 40 years ago was called a dangerous extremist, who wanted to put nuclear weapons in space and who proposed large tax and spending cuts hoping to destroy the power of Washington. You wouldn't get a uniform report of the scrubs. Why? Because I think you'd make a football player. I doubt Try it. Try it anyway. All right, if you insist. Now, wait a minute. What's your name? Kip. George Kip. Raised in the small towns of Illinois, he was the actor who changed America, helped bring down the Berlin Wall, and became a lion of the right. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Listen to part one of Ronald Reagan, From Illinois to California on 10 American Presidents, 
from Royfield Brown and the author of Reagan, American Icon Ewan Morgan. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a cast and wherever else you get your podcasts. There's a small nation built in a swamp that sits in the corner of Europe. It is nestled between the rivers and the sea, prone to disastrous flooding, and hemmed in on all sides by big, powerful countries, who often take the bragging rights when it comes to European history. It is the Netherlands, and it is the most influential swamp in the world. History of the Netherlands is a bi-weekly show which presents a chronological narrative history of the Netherlands. In their first 30-odd episodes, we've seen the Ice Ages come and go, a lowlander revolt against the Roman Empire, the inventive construction of life-saving dikes and dams, urbanisation, French and German princes vying for power, and more workers' revolts against those princes than you could poke a stick at. They've also imagined what it would be like to be a herring in the North Sea, and unsurprisingly, it's dark and wet. So, Come and listen to the history of the Netherlands as they explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a boggy swamp into an amazing modern marvel. That again is the history of the Netherlands. Across the border, the Army of the Covenant split into two. Lord General Leslie led the larger of the two forces, consisting of about 12,000 infantry, 1,500 cavalry, and 40 pieces of artillery, courtesy of, dear Sandy Hamilton, the Michelangelo of munitions, who was once again his general of artillery. Leslie's force entered the East March. In the West March came Lieutenant General James Livingston, commanding 6,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. As we've seen, central to the Covenant of Propaganda campaign in England was their assertion that, firstly, In all things, they were acting defensively in response to the overreach of the king. And secondly, that they were not the enemy of the English people. As we've also seen, the Covenant of military preparations included strict discipline, and their army units were made to swear to uphold a code of conduct while on campaign. Any realistic Covenant of victory would require the cooperation of Charles's English subjects, and the usual behaviour of an invading army, looting, pillaging, rape, etc., well, that risked that cooperation. So, as the two divisions of the army marched south, they were on their very best behaviour. The speed of this invasion took the English royalists by surprise. A substantial force was garrisoning Berwick, the foremost stronghold on the border, and the traditional first stop of most invading Scottish armies for centuries. 60 miles to the south was the town of Newcastle, with its own garrison, as well as another force of about 4,500 prepared to defend against an advance across the River Tyne. About 70 miles south of Newcastle is the great ancient city of York. Here, the bulk of the Royal Army had mustered, estimated at about 24,000 men, and it was here that Charles intended to meet with his army. Combined, the Royalists had a significantly larger force than the invading Covenanters. However, the initiative lay with Leslie, and he knew that Charles's army was divided between these three key points. Leslie's force split off a brigade under Major General Thomas Haddington to besiege Berwick, 
while Deer Sandy, the connoisseur of cannon, sent officers into the city to perform reconnaissance and prepare for an assault. Unfortunately for the Covenanters, the men were discovered, preventing a swift capture of the fortress. But more unfortunate for the Royalists, Haddington's men remained outside, surrounding the city, pinning them within Berwick. Leslie continued south with the bulk of his army, the principal fortress in the borders completely bypassed, and its garrison removed from the board. As the Covenanters marched upon Newcastle, Leslie once again split his force. One half would march onto Newcastle itself, while the other, under his command, approached a ford in the River Tyne. If they could cross the Tyne, then Newcastle could be assaulted from the south, where it was more vulnerable. This ford was at a place called Newburn. The following Battle of Newburn was the only significant action of the entire Second Bishop's War. Leslie heavily outnumbered the defending English, but he was not one to take risks. The night before attempting to cross at Newburn, he ordered nine pieces of artillery to take up concealed positions on the north bank of the river. It's also possible that he stationed cannon in the tower of Newburn Church. Edward Cohen states that he did so in his biography of the Marquess of Montrose, who wasn't at Newburn, but Grosjean and Murdoch are less certain. Either way, Leslie had superior firepower over the Royalists. The next day, the 28th of August, the two armies faced each other from opposite banks of the ford throughout the morning and most of the afternoon. Leslie's opposite number was Edward Conway, the second Viscount Conway, who commanded the much smaller force of only 4,500. The standoff continued until one Covenanter cavalryman, frustrated at the lack of action, rode forward and brandished his sword. He was quickly shot, and his death marked the beginning of the battle for the ford. Which ended rather quickly. Conway ordered 300 of his cavalry to try and cross the river, and they were met by Covenanter horse and foot. Now, Leslie revealed his artillery, which emerged from hiding at the ridge of the riverbank, and unleashed a withering bombardment on the rest of the Royalist force. With few artillery pieces of their own, and even those few cannon in inferior positions, the Royalists had little chance of outgunning the Covenanters. They didn't have the numbers, they didn't have the position, and they didn't have the technique. The few hastily built defences on the south bank were destroyed by the bombardment, and the Royalists quickly routed. It's hard to blame them. They were outnumbered, outgunned, inexperienced, underpaid, short on discipline, and in an indefensible position. To top it off, many really didn't want to be there in the first place. Now, in ordinary circumstances, in most other campaigns of this era, the Royalist route would be followed by a devastating slaughter. This was, after all, when most casualties in battle occurred, when one side broke formation and were run down by the enemy. But this was not an ordinary campaign, and Leslie commanded that the routing men be spared. Captured and wounded soldiers, instead of being summarily executed, were released, with only the officers being kept prisoner. Leslie was playing the long game. By this stage, the Covenanter leadership was in direct contact with several English subjects of Charles. Avoiding a slaughter was just part of the effort to appeal to English sensibilities and force the king to the table. In the end, each side lost about 300 men, 
and Leslie, victorious, marched on Newcastle. Newcastle was not prepared for a siege. The defences were incomplete, and its artillery had only just arrived that day, and so hadn't even been set up. In the aftermath of Newburn, the garrison left the city, and Leslie captured Newcastle without a shot being fired. In the city, he found a large amount of vital supplies. His army was very low on provisions, and had needed a swift victory, or else would have had to retreat. The army of the Covenant began preparing to hold the city. The defences were finished, the town was garrisoned. Contingents of the army were sent out to secure the northern counties and requisition supplies, and Leslie wrote to the estates to request as many reinforcements and supplies as could be spared. It shouldn't come as a surprise at this point when I say that the army was kept on a very tight lead. No looting or pillaging was permitted, and the few Covenanters who defied these orders were promptly executed by their officers. The goodwill of the Northern English, from the peasants up, was of paramount importance, and in this Leslie appears to have succeeded. So far, the campaign had been a resounding success. In Scotland, Dumbarton Castle had surrendered the day before Newburn. By mid-September, Edinburgh would also surrender. Riven's garrison, sickened by the siege, boarded a ship at Leith, with the general himself suffering from an illness. One of the few upsets to the Covenanter cause was the death of Haddington, who had been killed at Berwick in an English sally the same day that Leslie captured Newcastle. Now that War War had gone so well, it was time for Jaw Jaw. The Covenanters dispatched a petition to the King, demanding that their grievances now be addressed. They included the surrender of the remaining Royalist strongholds in Scotland, the arrest of the councillors, who had given such evil, tyrannical advice to Charles, payment for the army of the Covenant, and royal assent for the acts of the tables. While these demands came from the Covenanters, Charles also faced renewed pressure from his English subjects. On the 3rd of September, 12 peers presented a petition to Charles at York. Most of these men are well known to us now. They were Bedford, Essex, Warwick, Say and Seeley, Brooke, Howard, Mandeville, Hartford, Exeter, Bolingbroke, Mulgrave, and Rutland. And no, you don't have to worry about remembering all of their names. Their petition was just as extensive as the Covenanters, and just like many of the men who presented it, it's very familiar. It railed against religious innovations, illegal and unjust taxation, monopolies, the lack of parliaments. Added to these old friends were new charges brought about by the Scottish crisis. The wars themselves were seen as evidence of the injustice of Charles's religious and political policies. The fact that Charles had attempted to recruit Catholics, particularly Spaniards and Irish, in order to fight his own Protestant subjects, and in fact came very close to landing an Irish army in Scotland, was a scandal. Of course, the greatest scandal was that the Twelve Peers were committing treason. They had been in contact with the Covenanters for months now and had actively urged them to invade England while the Royalist forces were unprepared. They hoped that a military defeat would force Charles to call another parliament and force him to keep it in session. Then, with enough pressure, the reforms which, in their view, England badly needed could be imposed on the king. I mean, really, what's a bit of light treason when compared to the greater good? 
Charles was in a terrible position. His Scottish kingdom was virtually lost to him. A rebel army occupied the northeast of his English kingdom. He had no money. His army was in poor shape. Many of his English subjects opposed the war, and several were being actively seditious. And of course there was the looming winter, and the Covenanters controlled Newcastle and its vital supply of coal. Once again, force of arms had failed him, and he would have to negotiate. But Charles, of course, really didn't want to call another English parliament. So he dusted off yet another ancient relic of the English constitution, a magnum concilium, a great council of the realm. This was an assembly of the peerage, an ancient precursor and ancestor of parliament, last called in the reign of Henry VII. The concilium gathered at York on the 24th of September. Perhaps this would be enough to mollify Charles's critics. See, I am consulting the realm, just not through a parliament. Unfortunately for Charles, even the Magnum Concilium could see the writing on the wall. There was some promises of money, but the assembled nobility made clear to the king that there was no real alternative. He had, just had, to call a parliament. And so Charles proclaimed that he would, of course, call a parliament. He was always going to call a parliament. It was to meet on the 3rd of November, 1640. Obviously, no one knew this at the time, but it was going to be a very long parliament. The long parliament. In the meantime, there was a small matter of the Covenanter army which was occupying everything north of Durham. The demands of the Covenanters would form the basis of the negotiations, which continued throughout the rest of October. Eventually, the King and the Covenanters agreed to the Treaty of Ripon. Essentially, until a more detailed, more permanent agreement could be made with the imminent English Parliament, the Army of the Covenant would receive £850 a day to feed and pay the soldiers, and the estates would receive reparations to cover their costs. But that army? That was going nowhere. It was going to remain in the northeast of England until matters were permanently settled. You know, just in case they were needed, and just in case the king started considering a third bishop's war. Leslie arranged for Argyll to travel south in force, bringing with him another regiment of cavalry. Once the Parliament sits, and while the negotiations were being held over the following months, the Covenanter position would only become stronger with Newcastle and Durham reinforced and fortified, and a reserve Covenanter army mustering on the Scottish border just in case they were needed. Remember this context next time when we cover the dramatic events of the early Long Parliament. Thanks once again to everyone who has left a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. I read and appreciate them all. If you haven't done so already, please consider taking the time to do so. Even if you don't use it to listen to podcasts, Apple Podcast rankings and reviews are still one of the best ways to help a podcast grow. It only takes a few minutes, and I would really, really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to my House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the music used in today's episode, and, of course, to you for listening. Happy 2021. <laughs>